Our Lord Jesus, we need to meet with you today. We need to behold the apostle and high priest of our confession. So that we may hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. We cannot do that apart from the gifting of your spirit. So would you come, take this word, send it into our hearts deep like a seed planted in the soil. That it may burst forth and bear the fruit of a faith that endures through all of the uncertain days of the future, all of the trials and all of the tribulations that endures to the very end. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Hebrews is a relentless call to believers to persevere in the faith. It was written in order that we may stand firm in our confession of Christ and hold fast to our hope of the gospel in the midst of the storms that assault us day in and day out. The storms of doubt or fear or In some cases, persecution or loss or grief or tribulation or trials. Whatever it may be that the world and the flesh and the devil bring against us with the full force and array of their might. The book of Hebrews was written that our faith might persevere through it all. And the author is unyielding in his insistence that to turn away from Jesus... And to neglect the new covenant gospel in his blood in order to turn back to the way of works. To the old covenant law is nothing short of spiritual suicide. That's the point of chapters 1 through 10 of the book of Hebrews. You turn away from Christ, you turn away to your own destruction. In fact, he says to turn away from Christ and the confession of our faith in order to save ourselves from even persecution or maybe ridicule or shame or death is to throw away our very great reward and to shrink back to destruction. Or Hebrews 12, to sell our birthright in Christ in order that we may enjoy the momentary pleasures of sin like Esau did is to place our soul in very grave danger of everlasting rejection. The author of this book is so vivid and graphic and forceful and unremitting in his pleas because he feels as if he is preaching or writing for the very salvation of the souls of the people to whom he writes. It's like he feels as if he's engaged in mortal combat for their own salvation. And the fact of the matter is, he is. And so am I. When when I sat at my desk last week and began to study for this passage, I was initially kind of discouraged. And a part of me was was wishing that I hadn't chosen to tackle the entire book of Hebrews. (laughs) The question being, how how do I keep my messages fresh when the main thrust of every passage to which we come is consistently the same, summarized by these words, Jesus is better, so don't turn away from him. 
I mean, the only thing that has changed from week to week thus far is that to which Jesus is compared. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. He's better than the old covenant sacrifices. He's better, so don't turn away. The point of comparison changes, but the application remains the same. Do not turn back from the superior to return to the inferior. Whether the inferior be the old covenant, or whether the inferior be the world and everything in it. Stay with the superior. But last Wednesday morning, I was, out, I was in the middle of writing this sermon, two articles captured my attention. Both of which detailed the gradual exit from the historic Christian faith of two former Christian leaders who were influential when I was in college many moons ago. One article was about a man named Bart Campolo. He's Tony Campolo's son. Bart was then a, a popular speaker on the conference circuit, and he was the leader of an inner city ministry in Philadelphia and Houston and other places. And I remember him coming in my junior year at SBU to preach in our chapel service. In fact, it's because of Bart Campolo that for the past, what, 10 years, we've been sponsoring a compassion child. I remember him I remember him giving this passionate plea for, for compassion. I remember him standing up in the front of the chapel and saying, and saying, you visit the compassion desk in the back of the auditorium if you have any heart at all. <laughs> and I wanted to have heart, so I did. He was compelling. Since that time, however, his gradual descent from the faith has included a rejection of the sovereignty of God, a rejection of the authority of Scripture, and a rejection of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. In his own words, Campolo writes, quote, I started rejecting the supernatural stuff, the orthodoxy. I no longer believe that God does miracles or that Jesus was raised from the dead or that other religions were false. My Christianity died the death of a thousand nicks and cuts, end quote. Finally, he has renounced the faith altogether and has declared himself an agnostic humanist. And he spreads his atheism on the campus of the University of Southern California. The second article was about Jennifer Knapp, who was a popular Christian singer-songwriter from the late 90s into the early part of the 2000s, who came out a couple of years ago as a lesbian, and whose memoir was recently published and was reviewed on the Gospel Coalition website. Jennifer Knapp's story struck me as far more tragic, a sad reminder of what happens when faith is never nurtured in the soil of a local church and when it never sends its roots down deep into the truth of the word. And these two stories on Wednesday morning when I was feeling a little reluctant about my series in Hebrews reminded me of why Hebrews is so vital and so necessary at such a time as this why the author writes in the way he does, and why I've got to preach in the way that I do. He's writing for the souls of men. He's trying to give them a, a theological foundation on which to make their stand. He's giving them an anchor of truth to which they may tie, a hope of the gospel to which they may cling so that they don't drift away. He's heeding the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16 when Paul says to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. 
persevere in these things. Keep teaching, Timothy. Keep preaching truth, Timothy. Persevere. Why, Paul? For as you do this, he says, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. Timothy, you're preaching for the salvation of your congregation. Persevering in preaching the truths of the Christian gospel and the truths of the Christian faith will help Timothy, listen, Paul said it, save both himself and the congregation who listens to him week in and week out. That's why we're in Hebrews. That's why we're preaching Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 this week and why Next time, we'll be in the very next passage, and the week after that, we're just going to continue on. And I'll just tell you right now, the thrust of these passages is going to be the same. Why? Because I'm all too aware that I could be Bart Campolo, jettisoning the, the truths of the Christian faith one doctrine at a time because I no longer find them compelling. They don't work for me. You want to know why? Why? One of the things that began to chip away at his foundation was tragic. He's serving in inner city Philadelphia and he's listening to the testimony of a girl who was gang raped at the age of nine and who rejected the Christian faith because how could God let something like this happen to me? And he had no foundation to handle that question. You ever dealt with anything like that? Have you ever tried to counsel somebody who's gone through something even remotely close to that? We need a salvation. We need a faith that has foundations. We need to be able to handle that. That's why we're in Hebrews. She needed him to come along and say, I am so sorry for the evil that has come upon you, but my God is bigger than that and he is able to turn all things for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Maybe Bart Campolo needed somebody preaching Hebrews to him. I could be Jennifer Knapp. Selling my birthright for a lifestyle that's outside of the boundaries of scripture. A lifestyle that Paul says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I'm not more holy than Jennifer Knapp. What's to say some temptation won't come along that's, that's stronger for me than it was for her? And I'm forced with the choice, do I follow Christ or do I follow the world? I could be these people and so could you. So I'm, I'm preaching Hebrews this morning. I'm preaching the superiority and the supremacy of Christ this morning because I want to ensure salvation for myself. And for all you who hear me. And the way we're going to pursue our salvation together this morning is by considering two glorious realities. You see them on the back of your bulletin. That is, after all, the main point of this text. Only command given in all six verses. Consider Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. Because the author has some glorious things to say about Jesus in this passage. And he wants us to consider the word there means to give diligent, careful attention to what he has to say. 
He's going to tell us to some glorious things about Jesus, and he's going to tell us some astounding things about ourselves. And so we're going to consider both. We're going to consider who Jesus is, and we're going to consider who we are in light of who Jesus is. Because in order to persevere through the storms of this life, in order to persevere when we're assaulted by the world and the flesh and the devil, we must be convinced that Jesus is supremely glorious and that what we have in him is better than anything that can be found in the world. So let's begin with the command in verse 1 to consider Jesus. What exactly are we to consider? Well, throughout Hebrews, the author has been supporting his exhortations to perseverance and his, his warnings against falling away by appealing to a series of, of comparisons between Jesus and some key aspect of old covenant religion. Right? The first one you remember was in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, where Jesus is compared to the prophets, and he's shown to be superior to the Old Testament prophets because he's a son and they were but the servants. Therefore, the word spoken in him is superior to the word spoken through them. He then proceeded on to compare Jesus to the angels and to show the Son as superior to the angels and the covenant mediated through him as superior to the covenant mediated through them. And this morning in chapter 3, we run into the third comparison of the book of Hebrews and it's going to run to near the end of chapter 4. The comparison between Moses, the faithful servant, and Jesus, the sovereign son. If you will remember that the congregation to whom he is initially writing, they were in grave danger of forsaking Jesus and turning away from the new covenant gospel and returning to the old covenant way, the Old Testament law with its priesthood and with its temple and with its sacrifices. You can see why it was so necessary that that he deal with Moses. We can't convince them of the supremacy of Christ until we convince them of the supremacy of Christ over he who is the greatest figure of the Old Testament. So he exhorts them to consider the the superiority of Jesus over Moses because Moses was viewed as the lawgiver, the mediator of the Old Covenant, the figure who most represented the religion of Sinai. But before he contrasts Jesus and Moses... He compares them by showing how they both perform the same function for the covenant people of God. So we read in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. All right, you see those two titles that he attributes to Jesus, apostle and and high priest. Apostle simply means one who is sent, right? It's some representative who is appointed by and speaks for and bears the authority of the one who sent him. And Jesus was the apostle of God, appointed by God, sent by God, speaking the words of God. Well, you know what? Moses was in some sense the apostle of God of the old covenant. Moses was appointed by God and sent to the sons of Israel, to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt and to speak to them the word of God. Just as Moses was the apostle of the old covenant, he says, so was Jesus the apostle of the new covenant, appointed by God, sent into the world to deliver God's people from the bondage of sin and death and to speak the full and final word of God to the people. 
Well, likewise, even though, even though Aaron was the first official high priest, Moses functioned as the high priest of the people of God in some sense, in that he represented the people of God. He re- represented the people before God. He made propitiation for them through the blood of a sacrifice. He interceded for them on behalf of the people before the Lord. As we've already seen in the previous passage that we were in last week at the end of chapter 2, and as we'll see in much greater detail in chapters 5 through 10, Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant who represents us before the throne of God, who has made propitiation for our sins before the throne of grace and who intercedes on our behalf. So do you see what he's doing here? He's taking these two terms, apostle and high priest, and he's saying, you know what? Moses was faithful in the offices to which God appointed him, and Jesus was faithful in the offices to which God appointed him. Both Moses and Jesus fulfill these two great offices of apostle and high priest. Moses in the Old Covenant, Jesus in the New Covenant. Both were faithful to him who appointed them. Though Moses sinned and and, and therefore could not bring the people into the land of promise and into the fullness of their inheritance, the testimony of God is Numbers 12, 7. That's where the author's quoting from. Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house. This is likewise Jesus was faithful, accomplishing the purpose for which God sent him. So we're not denigrating Moses here. We're for Moses in the New Testament. He's not the enemy of Jesus. But there is a point where the similarities cease. For the word that Jesus has given as the apostle of God and the work of propitiation and and intercession made by Jesus as the high priest of our confession is so much greater and so much more glorious than the work accomplished by Moses. Look at verses 3 through 6. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house." I want to point out three ways in which Jesus is superior to Moses that's going to form the foundation for what's going to come in the next two chapters. Three ways. Number one, Moses served the house and was himself part of the house, but Jesus built the house. And therefore, Jesus owns the house. This is the point of verse three. When you see the word house in this passage, you shouldn't think of the physical structure. You should think more of household. Okay? The Greek word oikos can refer to both, and here it clearly means the household of God, not necessarily the structure. What is in view here is God's people, the covenant people of Israel. Moses was a leader in God's household, but he was still a part of the household. He was a part of the people of Israel. But he says, you know what? Jesus built the house. Jesus made the household. And I don't want you to miss the not so subtle equating of the builder of the house who is Jesus in verse 3 and the builder of all things who is God in verse 4. Just another instance of the author's really high Christology. 
Jesus is God, is the point that he is making. So what we see here, all right, just as God created the world through Christ, Hebrews 1, 2, even so did God build the house of Israel through Christ. And the author says that's why Jesus is accounted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus made Moses and everyone else in the household. Secondly, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. But Jesus is the sovereign son over God's house. This is the point of verses 5 through 6. We're talking about authority here. Moses was like the chief servant of the household. Everybody did what he said. He possessed great authority, had great responsibility. Everyone in the household, all of the members of God's household, took their orders from Moses. But Moses, the faithful servant, took his orders from Jesus, the sovereign son. His authority in the house as a servant cannot be compared with the authority of Jesus, who is Lord over the house. The most, the most Moses could ever be was a faithful servant within the household of God, but Jesus, the sovereign son, reigns over the household of God. There's contrast number two. Number three... Moses was but a temporary apostle and a temporary high priest, bringing the people a temporary word of a temporary covenant. But not Jesus. Jesus is the apostle, the high priest, who has brought to his people the final word of the new and everlasting covenant. Look at the bottom part of verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Right? Moses is giving a testimony to the fullness of something that's going to come in the future. Moses has a role to play, and it's an important role, but it's a temporary role. If we're going to use the metaphor of a temple, Moses was merely laying the foundation for the house of God. And the foundation is important. You can't build a structure on, on, on shifting sands. It's got to be built on something that's able to hold up the weight. It's got to be built on something that's solid. But Jesus is the cornerstone that ties the foundation together and on which the true temple of God is built. This was God's promise to David. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 7? I will build you a house, you will have a son who will build a house for me, a son's going to come from the line of David and he's going to build the everlasting house of God. This was Jesus' promise to Peter, Matthew chapter 16, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This was Paul's insight into the mystery of God in Ephesians 2, he says the church is the true temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And it's built, yes, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But Christ Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole temple of God is held together. So Moses laid the foundation, but Jesus has built the everlasting temple of God, which is the church, the redeemed of all ages. So what's he saying here? 
He says that while it's true that Moses and Jesus both filled the same offices for the people of God, they both served the same function, in a sense, for the people of God, that of apostle and high priest. Apostle representing God before the people and high priest representing the people before God. He says, but the glory of Moses is not to be compared with the glory of Jesus, who is in every way better. Because Jesus has brought to God's people a better word, a better covenant, enacted on better promises and a better sacrifice. But in addition to considering who Jesus is and dwelling on the supremacy of Christ, in this case over Moses, it's also essential to our perseverance that we understand who we are in light of who Jesus is. And in this passage, whose main point is to hold up Jesus for our consideration, the author reminds us up front of three truths about ourselves. Did you notice that? He doesn't have to. It's not essential to his argument. But he lays on three truths about us before he tells us to consider Jesus. I think the reason why is because he's trying to strengthen his congregation and the Holy Spirit is trying to strengthen you this morning with the knowledge of who you are in light of who Jesus is. So, so as we near the conclusion of this message, I invite you to take courage this morning. Because this is how your apostle and high priest sees you. This is how the Holy Spirit describes you. Number one, he says you're holy. He addresses you as holy brethren. You're probably aware that when the word holy is applied to sinful men, it doesn't mean sinless. It means chosen, set apart by God. See, formerly, you were unholy. You were part of the world. You were part of the problem. You were part of the fall, part of the rebellion, a descendant of Adam's fallen line. You were without hope and without God in the world, unholy. But God chose you, beloved, and he set you apart And he set his sovereign and electing and saving love upon you. And he sent his son into the world to redeem you at the cost of his own precious blood. And he sent his spirit into the world to awaken you from spiritual death and to awaken you to faith and new life in Christ. You are holy. Not because you're sinless. You are holy as you sit in your chair this morning, not because of anything that you've done, but because the sovereign Trinitarian God has set his saving love on you and set you apart for himself. You're holy. You're brethren and sistren. God is your father. Jesus Christ is your elder brother. And they are not ashamed to receive you into their family. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to bring you into his family. 
You're, you're not an enemy of God any longer. You are a son. And with Christ, you will inherit everything that the Father owns. You will inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundations of the earth. And thirdly, you are the partaker of a heavenly calling. Do you know that's what it means to be a part of the church? Ecclesia. To call out. You are a, a part of the assembly of the called. That is our identity. We're the called ones. The Christian life begins and ends with a heavenly call. The first heavenly call is what is known as the effectual call. That, that, that divine summons from a sovereign savior that awakens us when we are spiritually dead and opens our eyes and gives our, our ears the ability to hear and our minds the ability to comprehend and opens our heart to faith to receive the good news of the gospel. And we are born again to a new and living faith. It happens by this, this heavenly call. But there's a heavenly call at the end of our life. What Paul called the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's the consummation and the completion of our Christian journey. It's a call to a physical resurrection. So the first call is to a spiritual resurrection. The second call is to a physical resurrection. And both of them come from heaven. When the Son of God returns and all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, John 5, 28, and the sons of God will, will burst forth into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, you are partakers of these heavenly callings. The first, a call from heaven to faith and new life. The second, a call to heaven, to everlasting joy in His presence. And then in verse 6, the author reminds us of who we are by stating that we are God's household. We're God's sons and daughters. We're Christ's brothers and sisters. Fellow heirs with Christ of the kingdom of our Father. Glorious and inestimable blessings belong to us as members of God's household, right? But then it comes. Suddenly, violently, hitting us like the force of a sledgehammer. If. Do you hear it? Do you see it? If you hold fast, the confidence and boast of your hope firm until the end. And I want to warn you, beloved. I want to warn you who love eternal security. I want to warn you who wrap yourselves in the blanket of, of a salvation that is unshakably secure. Do not dare lessen the weight of this condition. You run the risk of trampling underfoot the Son of God if you do. We are holy. We are brethren. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. We are God's household. If we hold fast, cling to our confidence and the boast of our hope, firm until the end. And I want to tell you that for the first 24 years of my life, I had absolutely no theological category to deal with that verse. I, I, was, I had no ability, no framework in my mind to handle conditional statements, which I hated to am admit occur with great frequency in Scripture. 
See, I, I was raised under the banner of eternal security and thank God for it. I was nurtured in the soil of a once saved, always saved Christianity that frankly left me with no resources for understanding how the biblical writers could write in a such a way that it seems as if our salvation is conditional on our perseverance. See, the trouble was that, that I viewed salvation as a sort of contract whereby as, as long as I affixed my name to the dotted line, walked the aisle, raised the hand, prayed the prayer, at some point in my life, thus signifying my intent at that moment to receive the free gift of salvation, then God was obligated to forgive me, obligated to grant me everlasting life regardless of what transpired in the remainder of my days. That's the way that I viewed salvation. It was a contract. I, I would thus look at someone like Bart Campolo, for instance, who has now openly departed the faith, and I, I would be forced to say something like this. Isn't it, isn't it tragic that he doesn't remember that he's saved? Or I would look at someone like Jennifer Knapp, who openly and in a published way lives a lifestyle that is clearly outside of the bounds of the faith, and I would be relieved to know that at some point in time during her freshman year at Pitt State University, she had prayed a prayer, and therefore, no matter what has happened since, she's, she's saved. But this is not biblical salvation, and it will not hold up the biblical scrutiny, and it will not survive the coming chapters of Hebrews. Salvation is not a contractual agreement between God and man, whereby God promises to save us if we will sign our name to the dotted line. Salvation is the sovereign work of God whereby he raises sinners from spiritual death and imparts to them new life that bears the fruit of a real and saving and lasting and growing faith. That is why a believer is said to have been born again. That is why he is called a new creature. Something has happened that goes so much deeper than a decision. Than a walk of the aisle, than a praying of a prayer. Life has been given. And this life has some distinguishing marks that are there in every one to whom life has been granted. And if there is no fruit, there is no life. That's the way we should view salvation. And if your doctrine of eternal security can't handle Hebrews 3.6, you need a new doctrine. And I intend to give you one in the weeks to come. This new life, this new heart, sets its confidence, its hope on Jesus Christ, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession, and holds fast and maintains and perseveres and clings to that hope with desperation through, through whatever storms and trials and tribulations come to the very end of my life, firm to the end. Now, you trust me? Because I'm not going to explain that today. Because the entire next passage and about five more passages in the book of Hebrews are going to help us unpack what that means. 
So I want you to, I want you to come back, and I will explain it to you when we get to Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. I just want to end with a question. Going to kind of let the force of that condition fall on you. You belong to Christ if you hold fast your confidence and the boast of your hope firm to the end. And I'm going to ask you this question. Here's what I'm not asking first. I'm not asking if you've signed your name to the heavenly contract. I'm not asking if a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, sixty years ago, in a revival service or by your bedside or, or while reading a Gideon New Testament that you prayed a prayer and wrote, wrote your name down on a card. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you right now at 1137 on Sunday morning, October the 19th, where is your hope? Where is your confidence that come tribulation, famine, sword, disease, persecution, I'm going to make it and I'm sticking with him. What is your hope today? Is it in Christ and in him alone? In his blood which he shed for your forgiveness? In his righteousness, which he takes and clothes over your shame. In his death, his resurrection, his word, his covenant, his gospel. That's the question. Where's your hope? Where's your confidence? What's your boast today? And what will be your hope and confidence and boast tomorrow? And all of the days that come thereafter. What are we going to do? How are we going to persevere to the end when every enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil is arrayed against us? I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to consider Jesus. We're going to consider him today. And we're going to consider him tomorrow. And we're going to consider him next week and every week thereafter until we make it to the finish line. We, the holy brethren, the partakers of the heavenly calling, the household of God, the temple in whom the Spirit of God dwells, we are going to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, finisher, completer of our faith, until we break the tape and enter into glory. To this end we preach, to this end we pray, to this end we study, it's for this reason that we sing, all of it is designed to help us carefully and continuously consider the apostle and high priest of our confession so that we do not drift away and neglect so great a salvation which he purchased for all who trust in him and continue trusting him all the way to the end of the line. Where's your hope? What's your confidence? We're going to close with a song. It's a song that means a great deal to me. Because I was, I felt about eight years ago like I was in a ship that was just getting battered to and fro by every wind of doctrine and doubts and fears were assailing me. And, and I grew up in a church that only sang the first, third, and fourth. We never sang the second verse of any hymn whatsoever. It just wasn't Baptist. 
And so I never knew that there was a second verse to it is well with my soul. And I needed the second verse, which says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Those are the words of a man who is considering Jesus. And I submit those words to you. Being buffeted this morning, trials come upon you. If not, they will. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ, our apostle and the high priest of our confession, he has regarded. We consider him because he first considered us. He's regarded our helpless estate. And he shed his own blood for our soul. Let's pray. Wherever you're at this morning, I, I hold before you Jesus, who this passage tells us is greater than Moses. He's the builder of the house. He made Moses and he made you. He's built on the foundation of the law, an unshakable gospel. He's looked at helpless sinners and he has shed his own blood for our souls. I hold him before you and I invite you to consider him. Consider him in your financial turmoil. Consider him in your family trouble. Consider him in your, your job worries. Consider him when guilt and fear assail. And you don't know if you have a firm place to stand. And you don't know if God will accept you. And you don't know if you're beloved. Consider Jesus. Our God and our Father. Would you come and take the truth of scripture and plant it deep in our hearts. Open our eyes that we may consider Jesus. Open our, our eyes that we may behold him and in beholding him that our faith would arise and that our hearts would be inflamed in worship. Do your work in the midst of your people, I pray. Amen.